Episode 7, Woody and Pete go to war and mourn the president. Just as the Communist Party after June 1941 viewed the war in Europe as a heroic anti-fascist struggle, so Woody Guthrie, now back in New York, exhorted Pete Seeger, Lee Hayes and whoever else currently constituted the Almanac Singers to adopt a wholly different stance towards their president. Henceforth, Roosevelt must be exhorted to maximise American support for the Allies. In the little-known song, On Account of This New Situation, Guthrie recognised the irony of so many political contortions in so short a space of time. Bess Lomax, the sister of Alan, recalled how Woody was also continually frustrated by the curves of history which were wiping out our repertoire. He really wanted to write songs that would last. Meanwhile, Seeger, in the words of his biographer, faced the occupational hazard of political singers, song obsolescence. Inspired by Tim Robbins in 2006 for a Pacifica radio tribute programme, Pete Seeger portrayed Guthrie as the almanac's de facto commissar. Political sophisticates like Lampel and Hayes didn't need their semi-detached comrade to point out what every party member and fellow traveller were all too conscious of. Thus FDR remained a legitimate target, but only if the United States failed to give Stalin all he needed to stem the Nazi tide. Meanwhile, Lomax airbrushed Songs for John Doe out of the almanac's already checkered history. With his family back in California, an unencumbered Guthrie joined the Almanac Singers as a permanent member. Before embarking on a tour of the West Coast, followed by concerts across the Northeast, the group spent a day in the studio with Lomax. Guthrie sang lead vocals on three of the songs recorded for Deep Sea Chanties and Wailing Ballads and for Sod Buster Ballads. These antique albums were released in the late summer of 1941 by General Records, a New York label only marginally better known than Kino. Not surprisingly, the Almanacs enjoyed only modest record sales, but they were now attracting more newspaper and radio coverage. However, long hours together on tour led to sharp differences of opinion within the group. Lample grew increasingly unhappy with Seeger's reductionist view of global politics, shared in his own idiosyncratic way by Guthrie. But in the end, it was Lee Hayes who left in a huff. From then on, group membership became even more fluid than it had been before. The contortions in the Communist Party ended only after America entered the war in December 1941. Throughout this period, Guthrie generated a steady stream of anti-fascist compositions of varying quality. Between Barbarossa and Pearl Harbour, isolationism remained a potent force in domestic politics. For the Almanacs, its right-wing advocates were now objects of scorn and no longer uncomfortable allies. Although written some time after the Japanese attack on Hawaii, Guthrie's Mr Charlie Lindbergh epitomised the tone adopted by his group towards Washington's most vocal isolationists, the America First Committee. Roosevelt's predecessor, Herbert Hoover, joined a long list of malcontents, but the song's principal target was the Atlantic-crossing Charles Lindbergh, 
accused of encouraging access aggression as a means of advancing his presidential ambition. An ambition Philip Roth famously returned to in his counterfactual novel The Plot Against America. As in the mid-30s, Roosevelt could now look to support from organised labour and the left. In this instance, advancing his pro-British and now presumably pro-Soviet agenda. But only so long as the transition to a quasi-war economy was not at the expense of jobs, wages and workers' rights. This, in essence, was the revived popular front message of almanac songs written and performed in the summer and autumn of 1941. And it remains so in material composed after the onset of war brought the group into the political and cultural mainstream. In the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbour, the almanac singers were hot property, signed to a major New York agency and, courtesy of CBS's Saturday Night Showcase, broadcasting to an audience of over 30 million listeners. Respectability was short-lived, as an FBI investigation and hostile newspaper coverage saw Seeger's group become the focus of unwanted attention. Network broadcasts and a record contract with Decca brought only brief success once charges of double standards and Communist Party membership accelerated the Almanac's demise. Dropped by their agent and their record label, the group's bookings dried up. Long drives to solitary gigs and fierce quarrelling over money and lifestyle, Seeger's Puritanism versus Guthrie's and Hayes' hedonism, saw old friendships tested to the limit. By the summer of 1942, the Almanac singers scarcely existed as a group, its members absorbed into the armed forces and the war economy. Their breakup followed a fifth and final album. Dear Mr President was recorded by Alan Lomax in February 1942 and released by Keynote two months later. As signalled in the title song, A Seeger Talking Blues, the album sought reconciliation with Roosevelt in order to lick Mr Hitler and together secure a better America. Almost every song stressed inclusivity and a common effort and a newfound respect for FDR. Lomax ensured that a copy of his protégé's olive branch be heard in the White House, boasting later that the album had earned presidential approval. Like the Almanac singer's earlier albums, Dear Mr President was a worthy effort, but singularly lacking in excitement. This was an act better seen than heard. However, one song stood out, famously standing the test of time. Woody Guthrie let Pete Seeger sing The Sinking of the Reuben James, his memorable lament for the sailors drowned when their destroyer was torpedoed six weeks prior to Germany declaring war on the United States. The ship's loss was a key moment in Roosevelt's increasingly belligerent response to submarine attacks on American shipping. At the Hollywood Bowl in September 1970, Seeger chose The Sinking of the Reuben James as his contribution to the evening's entertainment. This was an appropriate selection given Seeger's heroic role in convincing Guthrie that an interrogative chorus, Tell me, what were their names? meant 115 verses, one for every sailor killed, might be shrunk to four. The Sinking of the Reuben James presaged 
Woody Guthrie's principal contribution to the war effort. From June 1943 to August 1944, he served as a merchant seaman in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. With Cisco Houston a shipmate, unsurprisingly, both men brought their guitars on board. Guthrie twice saw his ships torpedoed, with another crippled by a mine. Before and during his service at sea, he wrote, ranted and sometimes even recorded a remarkable number of propagandist anthems. Most were rooted in a simple narrative of how unionised workers in every allied nation were bound by a common goal of fascism's inevitable downfall. The song All You Fascists Bound to Lose dates from this time, as does This Machine Kills Fascists, the legendary slogan on Guthrie's Gibson. The working men and women in these songs were united also in a shared belief that Stalin soldiers had suffered disproportionately given the absence of a second front. Woody Guthrie wrote prolifically from the moment America entered the war. Yet these deeply political, emotionally charged, deliberately morale-boosting compositions constituted a fraction of his overall output. Prose and poetry, much of it unpublished, articulated a simple, polemical message. American workers must be uncompromising, both in their commitment to winning the war overseas and to protecting their hard-won rights and liberties at home. This was an anti-fascist crusade rooted in proletarian solidarity, where even the staunchest blue-collar patriot had to acknowledge the Soviet Union's unique contribution. Guthrie was by no means unique in expressing such sentiments. In 1943, the a cappella gospel group, the Golden Gate Jubilee Quartet, secured extensive airtime on the radio after recording Willie Johnson's Stalin Wasn't Stalin. Josh White's tribute to Soviet endeavour, Little Man, was especially notable given the close relationship he and his wife enjoyed with the Roosevelts. Although White had sung at FDR's second re-inaugural, Regular trips to the White House only started after his anti-segregation album, Southern Exposure, became Keynote's biggest seller to date, prompting an invitation from Eleanor to play at an official reception and to then meet the President. White's work with the Almanac Singers was conveniently forgotten, but so too was Southern Exposure's demand for desegregation on the shop floor and on the front line. A genuine voice of protest... Hailed in Harlem by the likes of Langston Hughes, Josh White's credibility within the African-American community collapsed once newspapers named him the presidential minstrel. Churchill's presence within the Big Three could scarcely be ignored, but Woody Guthrie dismissed his rapprochement with Stalin as a short-lived marriage of convenience. Visiting Britain in mid-1944 on his last tour of duty as a merchant seaman did nothing to change Guthrie's mind. Roosevelt had no comparable history of Bolshevik baiting, hence the belief shown in songs such as Ballad of Tehran that only the Kremlin and the White House could forge our new Union world. The Tehran Conference of the 28th to the 30th of November 1943, had marked a high watermark in ostensibly harmonious relations between the Big Three, or, to be more precise, 
in dealings between the Soviet and American delegations. The British delegation let it be known that FDR had treated Churchill shoddily and that his second son, Elliot, had behaved appallingly. This was the conference at which Stalin notoriously proposed a toast to the victorious Allies shooting 50,000 prominent Germans, generating silent agreement from Roosevelt and a vehement protest from Churchill. For the American left, a historic meeting in Iran between the Soviet leader and the president signalled the clear potential for post-war harmony. Yet such a goal could only be achieved if Roosevelt secured a fourth term. Who else in Washington had the authority and the experience to retain the Russians' healthy respect? Viewing Stalin's closure of the Comintern as a statement of intent, in May 1944, American communists demonstrated their faith in the strength and efficacy of the Grand Coalition by voluntarily dissolving the party. Former party members rallied round a Roosevelt bandwagon intended to complement the official campaign of the Democratic Party machine. Their enthusiasm was scarcely dented when the idealistic New Dealer, Henry A. Wallace, returned from a vice-presidential tour of Russia to discover Roosevelt aides now deemed the anonymous senator from Missouri, Harry Truman, a safer running mate. States were persuaded to choose a candidate as unfamiliar to the president as he was to most of the delegates on the convention floor. Singing at events organised by the ostensibly non-party Communist Political Association, Woody Guthrie's involvement in the 1944 re-election campaign was a largely unhappy experience. Long and tedious train journeys on the Roosevelt bandwagon took him far from his new home on Coney Island, shared with future wife Marjorie Mazia and their daughter Kathy. At large union-backed rallies, Guthrie... Cisco Houston, Will Gear, and other left-leaning artists out on the campaign trail were invariably well received. Each rally ended with performers and politicians all on stage singing The Girl with the Roosevelt Button. Guthrie loathed the song, which fittingly has disappeared without trace. The campaign song can't be found in the archives of the Presidential Library and Museum at Hyde Park the Roosevelt's home beside the Hudson River in upstate New York. Those meetings not staged by organised labour were often miserable affairs. Radicals, with no obvious track record of backing the president, were labelled opportunists by their critics. Outside of New York, artists like Guthrie and Gere encountered fierce hostility. Partisan newspaper coverage of virulent pro-Republican, anti-communist protests resulted in half-empty halls with a consequent effect on morale. On-stage quarrels were commonplace. Nevertheless, the final result brought satisfaction with a job well done and Guthrie returned to writing, a weekly radio show, concerts and any other means of making money to pay the rent and fund the food bill. He'd no intention of going back to sea, assuming the war would be over, before he heard again from the draft board. 
Whatever money Woody Guthrie made in the winter of 1944-45, it wasn't from record sales. In March 1945, Ash Records released Folk Say, a 16-song selection on three discs. The songs derived from Guthrie's most comprehensive recording session almost a year earlier. Ironically, that session came about courtesy of John Lomax, a man who, as we saw in the last episode, admired Guthrie's singing as much as he loathed his politics. Somewhat surprisingly, Lomax's Cowboy Songs and Other Frontier Ballads was a book beloved of New York record producer Mo Ash. Ash and his family had escaped persecution in pre-war Poland, but in the 1920s he returned briefly to Central Europe. In Weimar, Germany, he discovered a talent for repairing radios, a love of minority music, from Kletzma to Cowboys, and a readiness to embrace radical politics. By April 1944, when Guthrie wandered into the mid-Manhattan studio of Ash Records, its proprietor was a veteran promoter of progressive causes, Yiddish culture, homegrown folk and cutting-edge electronics. Mo Ash was the only man who could talk on equal terms with both Alan Lomax and Albert Einstein. Strangely, for someone who seemed to know everyone left of Mayor LaGuardia, Ash had never heard of Woody Guthrie. Yet by the spring of 1944, in New York, if not the nation at large, the writer of Bound for Glory had become a minor celebrity and a master of self-mythologising. The success of Guthrie's memoir rested on the timing of its publication, its author reinventing himself as a seer of the Depression, urging friends and neighbours in mid-30s Texas to prepare for the day America would find itself fighting Hitler and Mussolini. With Guthrie and Houston due to ship out in mid-May, Mo Ash brought both men into the studio to record a jaw-dropping 125 songs and tunes. A shortage of shellac meant a 12-month delay before Folk Say was released. The collection's mixed reviews and meagre sales reflected Ash's uninspiring choice of takes, with the earliest version of This Land Is Your Land left languishing in the stacks. In the spring of 1945, Guthrie retained his belief in Franklin Delano Roosevelt as fundamentally a force for good. Reporting of the Yalta Conference suggested continuing good relations with Russia and red-baiting remained muted. Politically energised, Guthrie remained positive about the future, even as his widely assumed communist affiliation again came to limit his creative freedom and his ability to make a living. In February 1945, naval intelligence revoked his seaman's papers, rendering him liable for the draft. Never was a man less suited to life in a uniform, but from May to December he served as a signaller in the US Army. The title was a misnomer, as in reality Woody was a painter. He maintained the depot notice board, with its predictable leftist bias, while doing all he could to secure an early discharge. On leaving November 1945, Guthrie married Marjorie, 
his new wife noting early signs of incipient Huntingdon's disease. Woody Guthrie had been blacklisted well before Roosevelt's death on the 12th of April 1945. Yet the Guthrie family was in no way immune to the deep sense of grief that engulfed all but Roosevelt's fiercest critics in the immediate aftermath of his death. Robert Clara, in FDR's funeral train, as we've seen, a fascinating account of the dead president's final train journey from Georgia to Hyde Park, described the dramatic scenes when his body was brought back to Washington. As the cortege crossed 9th Street, an elderly black woman broke across the police line and ran out into Pennsylvania Avenue. Lord God, she wailed, take care of us now. In Dear Mrs Roosevelt, Woody captured the moment when he learned that FDR was dead. I was a GI in my army camp that day he passed away, and over my shoulder talking I could hear some soldier say, this world was lucky to see him born. Guthrie was in fact still a civilian when news broke of the president's passing. Nevertheless, the verse echoes a grieving soldier's remark to Francis Perkins, Roosevelt's Labour secretary, outside the White House. I felt as if I knew him. I felt as if he knew me. And I felt as if he liked me. Another soldier, Bill Livingston, was in a POW camp when he and the other prisoners heard of the President's death. Tears ran down my face as they did on the faces of the rest of the group. Woody Guthrie's misfortunes and those of his comrades similarly blacklisted, as well as the Communist Party's reversion from coalitionist inclusivity to its former sectarian status were all seen as direct consequences of Truman's arrival in the White House. The deterioration in East-West relations, in reality evident in Greece even prior to the Yalta Conference, was attributable in the eyes of the left to a change of administration. In his behaviour towards the Soviet Union, Truman was seen as manifesting inexperience, nuclear triumphalism and a deep-rooted antipathy towards communism at home and abroad. Stuck in an Illinois barracks, Guthrie railed over the absence of the Communist Party at such a critical time, asking himself why the nation went to war, given that the right again appeared in the ascendant. However, the re-establishment of a staunchly pro-Moscow party in the late spring of 1945 and the rapid spread of industrial action in the weeks following VJ Day gave Guthrie cause for optimism, as did news of his imminent discharge. Guthrie's version of events immediately following the German surrender and his insistence that FDR would have avoided Truman's perceived miscalculations, resembles a view of the period popular on the left at the time of the singer's death. As post-war politics became more polarised and state harassment of communists became harsher, so Woody's rough-hewn political analysis became increasingly moulded 
by a distorted nostalgia. Thus, in his mind, the Roosevelts became more radical than had ever been the case, certainly as far as the late president was concerned. In one of his many letters to Mo Ash, written on the 15th of July, 1946, Guthrie claimed both Eleanor and FDR were as much victims of a mass smear campaign as the millions of Americans currently branded by the capitalist machine as communistic. Once more a civilian, Guthrie worked with Ash on a number of projects, notably the song cycle Ballads of Sacco and Vansetti, commemorating the anarchists executed in 1927 on trumped-up charges of murder. The album only appeared in 1964, reflecting the difficulty Ash Records experienced in releasing politically contentious material. The harsh reality was that a collection of Woody Guthrie recordings released in 1946 was unlikely to generate a decent return for either the company or for its artist. 